Well, as you guys, uh, as you guys know, we've been in this series, Last Words, and uh, uh, you've been looking at Moses, uh, Joshua, Samuel, David, Paul, and, uh, and, and some of you probably have seen it from miles away. Uh, some of you maybe did not, uh, but, uh, but I, I chose this series this summer. In fact, I think it might have been uh, Nate Songkran who was talking to me about this, and, uh, and, and it was one of those that I, I realized, man, like if this is my final summer with you guys, uh, why not bring week after week the sorts of messages that are kind of appropriate for somebody's final season? And uh, so we chose this series, and uh, I'm probably a little bit of a, 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 I don't know, maybe I like the drama, uh, maybe I'm just a glutton for punishment, but I, uh, every single week as I have been preparing, uh, I've been thinking about what I would say to you all on my last week. So uh, this is my last words. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's funny because I actually, I had in mind what I was going to share uh, maybe a few of you were here uh, five years ago when I started, and my very first Sunday was from Job, and it was on the glory of God, and I just thought it'd be most appropriate to sandwich my entire ministry, starting with the glory of God and ending with the cross of Christ. And so what I had anticipated doing was bringing to you all a, a, another gospel message uh, about uh, the reality of how sinful we are, how good God is, and that all he wants for us is to surrender and follow him. And I actually prepared most of that message. And, uh, and, and yet I realized that's kind of what I tried to teach you guys week in and week out uh, my entire time that I was here. And I thought, this is my last chance with you. And so what are some things that I want to say uh, before we move on? And so what I did is I, I, I scrapped that message um, although it's, it's the most appropriate message, and uh, I went a little different direction, and, and I want to spend a little bit of time uh, talking today about things that those of you who I have been meeting with and who I've spent time with, you have probably heard at one point or another, and uh, what I want to, to talk about today, what I want to challenge you all with today, really can be summed up in this single phrase, don't buy the lies. What we're going to look at are lies that are so easy to get sucked into, um, the types that many buy and don't even realize it. These are the sorts of lies that although they might seem like they're one degree off from truth over the course of 10 to 20 years, they will lead to somebody who's totally walking away from the Lord, separate from Him, chasing after their own life and uh, in their own desires, a life devoid of God and totally wasted for him. And my challenge for you all, the thing I want you to remember as my final words is don't buy him. There's a lot of things I could say. There's a few things that I want to focus on. First, reject Christian nominalism. You guys probably know this is the idea of being a Christian in name only, this is calling yourself a Christian without actually living like a Christian. Some people call this Bible Belt Christianity. Uh, some of you who have been here long, long enough, you probably remember Dr. Black and his favorite explanation or description of this, which is churchianity. 
Uh, it's uh, treating Christianity like a tradition rather than a relationship. It looks like going to church on Sunday as an end rather than a means to an end. You stand in the middle of a worship service like what we just had or maybe what we had over there, totally unmoved, which is the exact opposite of, of what should happen, and you're okay with it because at least you're here. As if attendance was the whole reason you went to church and you come to church in the first place. You hear messages about an almighty God who is holy and just and merciful and who loves you so much that he died for you. You sing songs about who he is and how grateful you are for him and how in awe you are and none of it does anything for you. You're not curious, you're not intrigued, you're not moved to gratitude or conviction over your sin, but that's okay because at least you're here. This is Christian nominalism. It's not thinking once about what God wants for your life from about 1.30 p.m. on Sunday all the way till about 10 a.m. the following Sunday. How would God want me to use my time today? You never ask those questions. How would God want me to use the money from my paycheck? Is this guy or this girl I'm interested in the type that God would want me to date? Are the conversations me and my friends have honoring to him? Sorts of questions never cross your mind through the week because it's not church time. So it's your time. You never surrender yourself under the authority of God's word. God's word calls us to not just hear but to do. You don't approach scripture earnestly asking God confirm or conform me more fully to yourself. A, 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 a nominal Christian does not approach God's word like that. They might read the Bible, but they're not coming to God's word saying, God, help me to see you more clearly. Help me to see my own brokenness more clearly and help me to love you more because of what I find in here. A.W. Tozer American preacher from the mid-1900s, probably his uh, most well-known quote at least. So what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God. But for the nominal Christian, they don't really think about God all that much. And the lie the lie that I'm calling you to reject is that that is totally normal and okay. That being a Christian is nothing more than simply identifying as one. That actually doing something for God and being something for Him is just icing on the cake. It's totally good, right? Like you're, you're taking your faith really seriously or you're uh, dedicating your summer to serving Him. Hey, that's awesome. You know, but that's just icing, it's not totally necessary because all that matters is that you call yourself a Christian, that maybe you go to church regularly. I had a coworker in Dallas. Uh, they had um, anger issues. They had um, 
language issues, they had marital issues, and, uh, and, and you wouldn't believe the shock when I found out that this person called themselves a Christian. <laughs> really? And, and it, it took me by surprise so, so much that I actually kind of, I, I stopped and I was like, what church do you go to? And she told me the church in town. I was like, oh yeah, I know that one. I said, that's a, that's, that's a huge church. She said, yeah, I know. Uh, that's why I go. Uh, I love it because I can sneak in. I can sit there and I can sneak out without anybody even noticing me. This is like the, the picture of what it means to be a nominal Christian, to think that that is all that God has called us to, when in reality, God's word. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is Jesus, right? So what he's saying is to be a Christian is to love God with everything that you have. To pray to love God with everything that is in you. To lay all of yourself on the altar, surrendering your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, all of it to him as an act of worship. This was Jesus' response, if you remember, to the question, what is the greatest commandment of all? And notice he didn't say, just make sure you check the box of being a Christian on the survey. You know, like if it's a, a census or a religious survey on campus. He didn't say, just go to church. Right, as if he's some sort of politician looking for votes or some sort of pastor, just looking for people to fill the seats. Like, I don't really care what's going on inside of here. I just want to make sure that you say you're a Christian and make sure you show up to church every once in a while. No. To be a child of the living God is the greatest privilege that there is. To have confidence of your eternity is the greatest hope and peace that there is. And we are reminded of all of this. We should want to love him with our lives. That's a Christian. So reject nominal Christianity. Next, reject moral therapeutic deism. Some of you know this uh, really kind of strange description. Uh, and if you don't, that's okay. Um, this is something that somebody came with not too long ago to describe the, 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 the most prevalent religion in America today. Moral therapeutic deism. Moral because it's basically... Uh, a, a belief system that says, my job is, to, is to, to be good. It's therapeutic because people follow this religion because it makes them feel good. And it's deism because they acknowledge, yeah, there's a God. It's the religion of so many today. In fact, most nominal Christians, really kind of all they're looking for is this right here. They're just looking for moral therapeutic deism. This looks like not getting drunk, not cussing, because that's not what a religious person does. It's not avoiding getting drunk, because that is the exact opposite of being led by the Spirit, right? And we know that leads to all sorts of bad decisions. It's not recognizing your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and you are a spokesman for God. Therefore, you want to make sure that what you say honors him. You just don't do those things because that's not what a good Christian does. 
Summer and I had a, had a, a, a group of friends who, um, whenever somebody did something that was kind of eh, maybe not uh, uh, what they should, uh, they used to say, that's not what a good Christian man does. Oh, that's just, you're just not acting like a good Christian man. You're not acting like a good Christian lady. And, uh, uh, and they, were, they were joking. You know, I don't, I don't think they would follow after these sorts of things, but it made me cringe every single time. And it always made me uncomfortable because, because it felt like this is all that the, the only standard that they were upholding and the only expectation they had for believers. Moral therapeutic deism also looks like only being good with your religion as long as you feel good about it. You're happy with your religion as long as it makes you feel right. The point is not worship or obedience or surrender. Those things are God-oriented, but not this. This is therapy. This is me-centered. And this person has found that religion somehow helps them to feel better about themselves, and so they're in, as long as it stays like that. Nobody can tell on the surface, but none of the religious things they participate in have anything to do with God. This person would, if you really kind of found them at an especially vulnerable or especially honest point, right? Let's say we gave a, a little something that they were really honest. They'd say, well, what do you think? This was never about him in the first place. This was always about me. The lie with this one is that motives don't matter. That's the lie. That motives don't matter. That as long as you're abide, abiding by a set of morals, that's all right. And as long as you keep showing up to church, we're good with that. But that's not what God says. 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, which kind of sounds like moralism. But Peter's not done because he then quotes God directly who, when speaking to Israel in Leviticus, says, you shall be holy for I am holy. The reason we pursue holiness is because that's who God is. We live like we live because that's the character of God. We pursue this not because it's some sort of set of morals to follow, but because this is God's perfect standard. Third, reject the myth of adolescence. And this one, uh, this one has always really uh, uh, been a challenge for me because I can see where believing what I'm going to describe here, how, how it leads to the potential for so much destruction in families and in churches for years to come. Uh, this is the idea that there is this period in life called adolescence where you're, you're out of middle school, right? You're not yet married and, and kind of in that season. You're allowed to act more or less however you want. Uh, you're given all sorts of freedom, but there's very little responsibility. You have freedom to buy what you want, to go where you want, to do what you want, but expectations are way down here because, after all, you're not an adult, you know, if you really stop and think about this myth, you'll realize that it's uh, nothing more than an excuse to act immature. And yet it's so common these days. 
this idea of this season in life where you can essentially act however you want with minimal expectation because you're not an adult yet. Uh, something I heard early on when I started here, actually, um, somebody was talking about college ministry, and they said, you know, one of the challenges is that college students today act more like 13th and 14th graders than they do freshmen and sophomores. And, uh, and I think it's true more often than we care to admit, right? Do you guys get what they're saying? They're saying that you're freshmen or sophomores in college, and yet you're acting more like you're just, you're just living an extension of your high school years, 13th and 14th grade. And one of the things that worries me most about this isn't that you might be tempted to keep acting like this. It's that you truly believe that that's how you're supposed to act. Because you're still an adolescent. Did you guys know, and you do, but I'm just going to remind you of it. King Josiah, one of the few godly leaders in Judah... He was only 16 years old when he committed to honoring God in all of his ways. And he was only 20 when he started tearing down all the, all the idols throughout the country. 16 and 20. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego stood for the Lord, right? Even standing in that fiery furnace while they were still teenagers, Even Jesus' disciples, the founders, Jesus founded the church, the ones who were tasked with helping to establish the church after only three and a half years with Jesus. And they were all likely in their late teens or early 20s at best. There was no such myth of adolescence throughout history, even many cultures today. This doesn't exist, this season in life. And I think it is stunting so many of your growths. Some of you have heard this story before, but a lot of you haven't. And, and when I think about this, I can't help but think about my own life experience. Uh, I was married. Uh, we had Micah at the time. And, uh, um, and uh, I was struggling trying to discern God's leading. And I called my dad because... Well, really, I, I wanted him to help me to understand how I was going to convince Summer that she should try to follow me in my really stupid uh, life plans. And, uh, uh, and, and so I called my dad, and we talked for probably 45 minutes. And, and around the last few minutes, my dad said, Paul, I think I know why Summer is having a hard time following you. And I said, really, what? And, uh, you know, I thought he was going to give me, like, the perfect prescription for fixing Summer. And my dad said, Paul, the problem is you're not leading her. He said, you need to act like a man. You need to make a decision. You need to lead your wife. I was so mad. Um, the conversation didn't end well, honestly. It was on the phone. I was frustrated. I didn't hang up on him, but it didn't end well but what I knew as I hung up that phone, I think the thing that tore me up so much is I knew he was right. And I've never forgotten that. It's been a formative moment in my life. And when I get together with some of you guys and I talk about maybe some, some challenges you're running into or the trajectory that you're heading on, I tell that story because that's, honestly, that's kind of the soft way to say, 
you need what I needed. You need to hear that you are not an adolescent, right? You're not a high schooler anymore, and you need to start thinking of yourself as an adult. This is why with Micah and Austin, both of my boys, Micah's only 11, uh, I was just reminding him of this yesterday. I said, Micah, I call you a young man because you're 11, almost 12, and I want to make sure you understand that you are a young man. You might be in your teenage years, but I want you to begin to think of yourself as a man. Because your vision for your future and what God has for you will always be stunted and it will always be limited if they walked around making excuses for acting like, uh, like most 11-year-olds. Instead, what does God's word say? There's a lot of things I could have turned to. 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul writing to young Timothy himself, he says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So what if, instead of giving yourself all, all sorts of excuses to keep acting like a high schooler, like some people uh, warned me about early on, right? What if you set for yourself the goal of being an example for others to follow. So please don't buy this lie, this myth of adolescence. Your families one day will need you to act like men and women, and the church needs you to act like men and women. Next, reject the American dream. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Right, the American dream, which is for so many their definition of success in life. This is how so many chart out their, their, their life goals and their life plans. By 24, they want to be graduated from college. By 25 or so, they want to be married. By 28 or so, they want to have signed that 30-year mortgage By 30, they want a steady, lucrative career. By 50, they don't just want that 30-year mortgage. They want their dream home. They want that fancy car. They want that boat. By 65, retirement, golf, month-long European vacations, no commitments, no responsibilities. Which is, if you think about it, what they are preparing for and the life that they have adopted because they have bought into this American dream is they are spending the best years of their lives investing in the last years of their lives. When their energy, their mind, their their cash flow, their influence is at its greatest, they're either using it all on themselves or they're socking it away for just the final few years. And then they are spending their freest years of life, which is retirement, on nothing of eternal significance. At a season in life when they have the most time available for the Lord and they are wasting it away. Reject it. Don't buy the lies. Instead, uh, George Whitfield, some of you might know him, he was a very active preacher, 
uh, in here in the United States during uh, uh, one of the most historic revivals in history. And somebody told him, they said, man, you're pushing yourself so hard. You just need to slow down and, and enjoy life a little more. And he said, I would rather wear out than rest out. This idea that so many are just resting away, wasting their lives, wasting the opportunities and the giftings that God has given him, given them. And Whitfield said, I'd rather wear out than rest out. We just looked at this last week, Acts 20, 24. This is Paul. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. And as we studied last week, right, he said this with almost a, a, a decade of life and ministry left. And when he came to the end and he wrote his final letter to Timothy, he says, I have finished the course Exactly what he told these Ephesian elders is exactly how he lived the rest of his life. Now, I don't know what your course is, but I know God has one for you, and my call is for you to give your life to that. Dream of being able to say what Paul did as he wrote to Timothy. Think of each season in life as new scenery, same mission. You're in college, you graduate. You get married. You Maybe you buy a house, right? All of those sorts of things. But think about it as this might be new scenery, but the mission has not changed. In my, uh, uh, my grandparents' uh, bathroom, oddly enough, uh, as some of you guys know, they were, uh, they were um, church planters out in northern Utah like 70 years ago. And I remember as a kid, in the bathroom, you'd be washing your hands, and it was this simple little... Uh, wall art thing and it said ministry the pay isn't much but the retirement plan is out of this world (laughs) which I know is kind of cheesy but I've never forgotten it Uh, my grandparents never had much but I can only imagine what it was like for my grandpa who passed away a few years ago stand before Christ and be able to say what Paul said I finished the race The work, God, that you have given me to do, I have worked all the way to the end, and he did, and I have finished the course. You know, after this week, I'll be gone. Another guy's going to replace me here. You'll graduate. Somebody else will be preaching to you every single week. Somebody else will be meeting with you on a regular basis. The faces will change. The names will change. But Lord willing, they will continue to serve, pointing you to Christ, doing exactly what I've tried to do these last five years. Then you're going to get married, you're going to have kids, you're going to live life, you're going to grow old. And then one day, you'll stand before Jesus. And in that moment, you'll be judged on two things. Your faith. Who or what did your faith rest in? And your works. What did you do with what God gave you? Your faith determines your eternity and your works determine whether you have anything to give back to him or whether you escape, but only through fire. And in that moment, you won't be able to blame your parents, your teachers, your church. In the end, 
the person responsible for your life is you. Don't buy the lies. Our world is filled with lies, which shouldn't surprise us. Jesus told us in John 8, 44, your father, the devil, he's talking to this crowd of unbelievers and he says, your father, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Don't be so naive to think that that list and all the other lies that you might be uh, tempted to believe, don't think that they just bubbled up on their own over time. Satan is actively involved in this world, doing everything he can to either keep a person blind to the truth of the gospel or, if he can't do that, to at least make you as ineffective as possible for God's work, for the gospel. Which, if you think about all we've talked about, this list right here, these aren't lies that come from outside. These are lies that we find right in here, which should scare you and open your eyes. And the best way to fight against these lies is found in Ephesians 6, 17, the sword of the spirit, right? Which is what? It's the word of God, the thing in our spiritual armor that is used to actively fight against the attacks of Satan is God's word. But you can only use it if you know it. You guys know how bank tellers are taught how to recognize Real money, right, versus counterfeit money. So they handle the real stuff, and you handle the real stuff long enough, and you can pick a counterfeit out from a mile away. Same thing with God's word. Your only chance to know that something is a lie is to spend so much time with the truth that your lie radar goes off when you hear something that just is not quite right. And you're like, that does not sound like truth. And you go to God's word, and you realize why, right? One of your goals in life should be to be so saturated with God's word that you ooze biblical truth and biblical living. As Charles Spurgeon once said, oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I've seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historic facts. But it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scriptural models and what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. Don't buy the lies. There is a God He has appointed a day for each of us to die and he has appointed a day for each of us to stand before him. Let that strike fear within you. But don't let that fear ruin you. Instead, let that fear lead you to him. For some, like the Philippian jailer you can read about in Acts 16, that fear led him to repentance and salvation But for others, like what you can read in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah was brought face to face with the majestic glory of God, let that fear, that reality of who God is, lead you to forsake everything in this world and surrender totally to his will for your life 
you all know how much I love the stories of faithful saints through the years, how God has used them to challenge me and encourage me. Uh, one which I shared with you all earlier this year is uh, C.T. Studd, if you, can, if you remember, he surrendered his life. He was like the best cricket player in all of England, if not Europe, which was kind of a big deal back then. Surrendered it all to serve God in China. He wrote a poem titled, Only One Life, that many of you might know a portion of. In fact, I think probably most of you do at least know its, its, its refrain. But I want to read it all. I want to read all this and I'm going to conclude with this and I want you to listen carefully and I want you to be challenged by it. He writes, two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice. Bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasures on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say it was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. God, we thank you for a perfect Savior who came to this earth, who humbled himself, who died on the cross, who bore your wrath, who rose from the dead and who is now preparing a place for us in heaven. We thank you for your son, and we thank you that in your providence you chose to save us and you chose that all of us could come week after week, day after day, hearing this incredible truth of your gospel. God, there are so many distractions in this world. I pray that these students would fight 
against all of them, that they would fight against the lies, that they would swim upstream the rest of their life if that's what it takes, but that they would live with an eternal perspective so that they could one day stand before you and recognize that they ran the race, they finished the course, and that we all would hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Father, we pray that our lives bring you praise in all that we do now, next year, and the years to come. In Jesus' name.